0: Uh, well, good morning. Welcome to Oceanside Sanctuary. For, for those of you who don't know, my name is Jason Coker. I'm the co-minister here, uh, and we are in the midst, really approaching the end of a teaching series that we are calling Conversations with Jesus. What we've done for those of you who haven't been around is we've gone through the Gospels and picked out a handful of passages where Jesus is engaged in a kind of dialogue with other people. And what we have said is that this is essentially what characterizes our tradition, this approach to figuring out who God is and what it means to be in relationship with God by virtue of having these ongoing dialogues, these conversations that help us get closer to what is good and right and true. And so we're, we're noticing that Jesus engages in that same practice, and then we've asked ourselves what we can learn from each of these encounters. Today we're going to continue in that series, but today we're going to take a look at a passage that's a little different. So Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 71, and this is where dialogue fails, where it breaks down, where Jesus discovers that sometimes talking through differences, in fact, doesn't work. Uh, And I suspect that that's something that is familiar to each of you. I think We all know what it's like to have a conversation with somebody that just goes nowhere. For some reason, it maybe even stimulates more conflict or more opposition. And I can't imagine that just days before midterm elections that any of you have any idea what that is like. Uh, But there is an example of Jesus uh, experiencing that same sort of roadblock. So we're going to take a look at that today. Before we do, would you just pray with me? we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to gather, uh, to raise our voices and to pray, to reflect, to come to the table of communion, to participate in all of these acts that help us to draw a bit closer to what you're calling us to. We pray that you would meet us in the text today, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would be receptive to what you might be uh, saying to us in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I really uh, do uh, love what Claire Elise shared this morning about uh, uh, about indigenous heritage. It would be, I think, a mistake if we didn't take a moment to acknowledge uh, that this church, our congregation, Uh, This building has been around since 1928. This is our third building in the history of our church. We call it the new building because it's the latest one we built. Um, But this building is, of course, built on land that was stolen, that was taken from the Kumeyaay and uh, uh, local Luiseno tribes. And of course, wrestling with that opens up a whole can of worms. What does it mean for us to acknowledge that this building is built on stolen land, that there were people living in this area whose lives were completely uprooted by a colonizing force who were bent on erasing their culture, bent on erasing their heritage. Uh, Clarice mentioned uh, her family, her relative who went to a uh, uh, a school that was intended to essentially uh, colonize them, right? To replace their culture with another culture, uh, and, and some of you might know that three blocks up the street is one of those schools, uh, the Americanization School, uh, which is a sort of local landmark here in Oceanside. Was built to Americanize local uh, Native and Hispanic children, uh, and. It's considered an important landmark in Oceanside. Not too much farther up the road, of course, is San Luis Rey Mission, the largest mission in California, which stands as a testimony to uh, the long tradition of the Spanish conquistadors who took over this land. All of that, of course, was done in the name of Jesus. And when I say all of that, I am glossing over (laughs) a lot of tragedy, a lot of evil that was done by people who believe sincerely that it was their mandate to bring Christ to heathen groups. And so we have, I think, a, an amazing responsibility to reckon with that past as Christians today. Uh, I didn't know that that's what Claire Lisa was going to share about this morning, but it does, in I think really important ways, intersect with what we're going to read today. So, Luke chapter 22, verse 66, tells the story of Jesus being brought before the council. At this point, of course, it's later in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has engaged, and like we said, this sort of practice of dialogue, this tradition that is inherent in the Jewish tradition of trying to come closer to God by dialoguing and discoursing about what's true. And Jesus enters into that same tradition. He brings his perspective on who God is and what is good and right and true. And of course, he encounters people who disagree with him. He makes enemies along the way. And as he enters into that dialogue and makes enemies along the way because of what he stands for, he is eventually brought to the council, because as that dialogue fails, his enemies in that sort of ongoing dialogue decide that they can't argue with him anymore, and so instead, they bring him before a decision-making body for judgment. So Luke chapter 22, verse 66 says this, When day came, this is after Jesus has been uh, beaten, arrested, and and then beaten Over the night, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together and they brought him to their council. And they said, if you're the Messiah, tell us. And he replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And all of them asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. This is, of course, the story of Jesus being judged by the ruling council in Jerusalem. And it represents a a moment where this violent confrontation between Jesus and those who disagreed with him comes to a head. So I want to pause here for a moment and just ask you to reflect on this question Uh, What has been helpful to you when dialogue no longer works? We've been talking about this for several weeks now. What does it look like to engage in a helpful, productive, good faith dialogue? But here, Jesus' dialogue no longer works. Instead, people have come against him. And so I want to stop and just ask you this question. What do you do? When engaging in a conversation, engaging in dialogue, or even good faith debate just no longer works anymore. Something goes terribly wrong. People shut down. Maybe even they get angry or even uh, try to threaten you in some way. What do you do when that happens? What have you learned is helpful in that kind of situation? Now, maybe some of you, it occurs to me, uh, you know, the worst experience you've ever had is like a terrible argument over Thanksgiving right, with your family. And that's OK. I mean, if that's your example, that's fine. But what, how have you learned to cope with that? How have you learned to deal with disagreement that just can't go anywhere? For others of you, I'm very aware that it is much worse than that, that the disagreements that you have with your close family members or your friends or your coworkers results in them taking a position that threatens you in some way. It threatens your well-being, your safety. Uh, and maybe they were willing to tell you that. And so for those of you who are in that place, maybe you've adopted very different strategies that you've needed to take in order to be protected. So I want to ask you to share with each other, right? This is a series about dialogue, and throughout this series we have put you all in the uncomfortable position of, you know, dialoguing. And today is one of those days. So for the introverts in the room, I know how hard this is, trust me. I'm an introvert, believe it or not. So if you would rather reflect on your own and you don't want to join in a conversation, that's okay. Uh, You're welcome to grab a little notebook in the pew back in front of you and just write your own thoughts out. But if you're willing, I want you to join in groups of about four or five around you and then just wrestle with this question for about five minutes. It's gonna be very, very quick, right? So you don't have to get into a lot of deep uh, revelations about your life, just share. Uh, What has been helpful to you when dialogue no longer works, all right? So gather up with people who are close to you if you're willing, and then I will call you back when the five minutes is up, and I'll ask you to report back. For those of you who are online, you can share in the comments on Facebook and YouTube. All right, time's up. So what I'd like us to do is just debrief a little bit. I'd love to hear from maybe two of you uh, or, or three of you what you talked about in your group, what came out. What we're going to do is uh, have Finn, who is there at the back with a microphone come around. So yes, we'd like you to speak into the microphone. and um, This is partly so that those who are watching online can hear you. Uh, But my question again was, what has been helpful for you when dialogue no longer works? If you're comfortable sharing something that was talked about in your group that was helpful to you or inspiring to you, uh, would you be willing to share that with the rest of us? Just raise your hand. There we go. Right up here. And please tell us your name, too. By the way, not everybody knows each other. My name's Gary. And uh, we came up with... uh, you know, uh, it's better off to like uh, just agree to disagree, and uh, change the subject, <laughs> and uh, be open-minded, and check other different avenues of what may entail about the uh, conflict of interest, if you will,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, and then I also came up with like uh, just whatever it takes to be okay, as long as the conversation's okay conversation is okay and it's better off just sometimes leave it alone. Mm -hmm. I love the sort of peacemaking nature of this. By the way, that was a whole list of good suggestions. I don't know if you guys were taking notes, right? Uh, But the one that uh, really stood out to me was be open-minded, which Gary's stealing part of my sermon. I might get there at some point today. Uh, Thank you for that. Also to agree to disagree. There are times when people in good faith who really love each other can agree. To disagree, I'm sure everybody can identify with what that's like, and that's a useful and helpful skill. And then that last bit about uh, just making sure that you're okay, making sure everybody's okay. What I like about that is the centering of our relational commitment to each other, right? And so it's important to remember that we are brothers and sisters first, right, before our ideas, before our pet beliefs or doctrines, that what takes precedence is our relationship to each other. Okay. So good. Very peacemaking oriented group over there. I like that. Peacemaking is not easy, right? Sometimes we speak about it negatively, but it's very important. Anybody else? George, right? Yeah. Right up here.
1: You know, we came up with the idea if we're going to have a disagreement that we just sometimes need to retract and Mm. go away and agree to like he said agree to disagree and part his friends and you know we also came up with the idea that the other person might have valid points in their discussion and Mm -hmm. a lot of times you know we would have to sleep on things to, to kind of get the uh the full impact of what they're trying to say or purport and just you know essentially nobody wants to have a Full-blown knockdown argument these days, especially when it deals with family issues and politics and things of that nature. So uh, we just—it's just being pleasant to each other and treating each other with respect, and you know, agreeing with respect and not being a, a real uh, hard person to deal yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I felt like for a moment there you were going to use a stronger word, which would have been okay. <laughs> But uh, one of the things I really love, (laughs) one of the things I love about what George just shared is he spoke briefly, he didn't use this phrase, but this is how I heard it, he talked about humility, like being willing to entertain the possibility that you're wrong. Uh, And that is part of what it means to engage in a good faith dialogue, a good faith conversation about disagreements is the willingness to say, you know, I could, might be wrong about this, and I liked the practical advice to maybe withdraw and sleep on it. Uh, how many of you have ever like written a six paragraph angry email in response to some idiot in your life, and then you were like, N- yeah, maybe I shouldn't send this. Uh, and then like, you know, you left it in your drafts folder, and you went to sleep, and you woke up the next day, and you looked at it, and you were like, what was I thinking? Like This would be a terrible idea. I'm not sending this email. And how many of you have done that at work, right? (laughs) Yeah. Any work email, by the way, that's more than three sentences long is probably too long. You're probably too passionate. Okay. By the way, I am such a hypocrite on that note. Right now, Alex is like, what? (laughs) Okay. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, Yes, Alexis. Thank you.
1: Y'all having some polite conversations? Yes. Um, so we have, we all have experiences with a lot more like aggression in yeah. the in the dialogue. And um, I, what works for me is when I say we're not doing this, mm. and then I leave. Um, what works for us, uh, someone else, I heard, um, you know, shutting down and trusting that eventually they'll work it out and maybe see your your side of it, which is an option. And then I also heard um, not allowing that person to have access to you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, drawing that boundary, they cross the boundary and no longer are they in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, and having those kinds of conversations. So good on you, but like, (laughs) that don't work for me.
0: Yeah, I, I so appreciate that we had a group who was willing to say some of those things. I, you know, really agree with the other comments here, but also there are times I think. Uh, when it's important to not only withdraw from the conversation, but there are times when we learn that certain people, certain relationships in our lives aren't good for us anymore. They're harmful for us. They might be physically harmful for us. They might be mentally and emotionally harmful for us. And so we have to moderate our exposure to them. And so I really appreciate that uh, Alexis's group was willing to chat about that. Uh, This is hard, right? So I appreciate that you guys were willing to share this. I want to go back to the text and take a look at some of what Jesus did here. And I want to just say that as we take a closer look at how Jesus encountered and handled a difficult situation, that this might not sound like great news to you. So I want to acknowledge that and also just add that we all don't have to handle our situations exactly the way Jesus did, I know that's not what you normally hear a preacher say in church, but I wanna acknowledge that there is an aspirational quality to what we see happening here. And we aren't always ready to do what Jesus does, right? Uh, So having said that, let's jump back into this text. The first thing that I notice is that Jesus addresses the elephant in the room. Verse 66, it says that when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes gathered together and they brought him to their council. Jesus is literally arrested, beaten, and then dragged before a council of people for judgment. And then they said, verse 67, if you are the Messiah, then tell us say so. This is sort of the crux of the matter. There are rumors that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, and people were very excited about Jesus being the Messiah. The the Jewish people at this time are desperately in need of their Messiah. They are living under the oppressive rule of an occupying foreign force at the tip of a sword, And their tradition tells them that a Messiah is going to come and liberate them and vindicate their God in front of all the other gods, in front of these military forces. They are crying out for a Messiah. Jesus is not the first or the last ancient Jewish person to be proposed as a Messiah. So they're normally very excited about Jesus until it becomes clear that Jesus' message throughout the Gospels is not quite what they were hoping for. Instead of Jesus coming and saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, grab your swords, let's band together, let's, you know, slaughter these invading uh, foreigners and let's vindicate our rule. Instead of that, Jesus says really frustrating things like you should love your enemy. You should pray for those who persecute you. You should turn the other cheek. You should go the extra mile in demonstrating love. This is not the narrative that they're hoping for. And so Jesus is judged to not be the Messiah anymore. Uh, And so they are asking him to own up to the claim that he is the Messiah. Jesus names the elephant in the room in his response. Verse 67 If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I question you, you will not answer. Jesus essentially says, this conversation is pointless. You're not asking me a real question. You're not looking for the truth. You're looking for me to respond in a way that justifies your response to me. And this is something that I think is helpful for us when we're engaged in a conversation or a dialogue or a debate or an argument or a knock down, drag out Thanksgiving Day, like you know, uh, debacle. I don't mean to like freak you all out about Thanksgiving coming up, but like I want to prepare you, right? Jesus just names the issue. Hey, this isn't a real conversation. And I think that's very helpful. I found it to be very helpful when I'm engaged in a debate with somebody, whether it's in person or on Facebook, and you know, they're like calling me out for being a heretic, that's usually what I get accused of being. Uh, I'll just say, this isn't a real conversation, you're not interested in us figuring out what's true here, you're just interested in justifying yourself. It's also helpful when I recognize that I'm that person. When I don't want to be in a real conversation, I just want to justify myself. And that usually is a realization I come to after writing three or four or five paragraphs on Facebook in response to somebody. What am I doing? Like I'm just feeding my own ego here. Um, I think naming the reality of that, learning to recognize the reality of that is helpful. Two things that I notice about this. Productive dialogue requires open minds. And this is what Gary's group mentioned. Productive dialogue requires open minds. If we're going to have a dialogue, if we're gonna figure out what is good and right and true together, then we all have to be committed to what is good and right and true, first and foremost, before our identities, before our beliefs, before our sources of power. And that I think is an important question to ask. Are you committed in any given disagreement to finding out what is really good and right and true, or will you sacrifice what's good and right and true to protect your livelihood? Will you sacrifice what's good and right and true to protect your identity? Or are you willing to submit to whatever the truth is once that's figured out? And and that's like a lot to figure out, right? Like, let's just acknowledge that. But we must be committed together in an open-minded way to actually discovering what's good and right and true. The second thing I noticed that's related to that is that productive dialogue requires the abdication of power. Here's why I think that. Because if you and I are committed to what is good and right and true above all else, that, by definition, means we give up power. Right? To give up our identity, if the truth requires it, is to let go of being in control. To be willing to sacrifice Our source of power, our livelihood, our cherished relationships, even, if we discover that the truth is bigger than that, is to let go of our power. And this is, I think, what we mean by the phrase good faith. When people are engaged in a good faith, dialogue or argument or conversation with each other, what that means is that they have placed their faith in the ultimate commitment to what is good and right and true. And that means they don't have faith in their ideas, their opinions, their personal commitments, their source of a paycheck, their political ideologies, whatever it might be, it means to let go of it and place it out here in the hands of this invisible other reality that we tend to call God. That's what faith is. So realize that we don't have the control, we don't have the power, and so we're committed to this notion that we can take that power and trust that God will somehow work that out if we approach it, in good faith, but that means that if you are engaged in this dialogue with somebody who is not doing it in good faith, then there's no dialogue, it's done. Their commitment is to protecting their identity, to protecting their beliefs, to protecting their power, to protecting their tradition, to protecting their identity politics, to protecting their position at work, to protecting their aspirations for future positions in whatever organization that they're a part of. If they're willing to sacrifice everything to those things, then you have already lost the argument. And so have they. What has taken the place of faith then in that conversation is power. And anytime you are in a dialogue with somebody who sacrifices what is good and right and true because of power, there is no longer any point to the dialogue. It's over. And at this point, I think it's worth saying you don't have to continue. If you're in a conversation with somebody and they are willing to flex their power in order to win, I think you are justified and maybe even right in just walking away. And some of you have said that. This group here talked about the importance sometimes of realizing that to continue is to put yourself in harm's way. And that's the point at which you need to just end the conversation. And Jesus effectively ends this conversation when he says, hey, it doesn't really matter what I say. You're not going to believe me, but this is the hard part of the passage. Jesus doesn't walk away, partly because he can't. He's been arrested. (laughs) He's been beaten. He is now about to become the object of the wrath of power in order for power to protect itself. And so he really has no choice. So, facing that terrible reality, Jesus prophetically faces the consequences of a dialogue with somebody who is committed to power over the truth. We see this in verse 69. Jesus, after saying, hey, this conversation is pointless, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And when Jesus said that, his fate was sealed. When Jesus said, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power, he is referencing prophetic passages from Daniel and Psalms chapter 101 that identify the Messiah with that person who is seated at the right hand of God, and he knew exactly what he was doing. he was putting himself further in harm's way. Two things I notice about this. God's power will be displayed, Jesus says in this passage. God's power will be displayed in Jesus' suffering. He knows that this will close the trap, that he will end up being convicted And he will end up on a cross and he does that willingly knowing that this is more often than not how power is transformed here's what i mean by that the truth as we're seeing in this passage always stands in weakness So when I said that our ultimate commitment to what is good and right and true requires that we give up power to what is good and right and true and let go of power ourselves, that means that when we stand with the truth, we stand in weakness. Like Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, where it describes that uh, when Christ was incarnated, right, Paul said, Uh, Jesus did not think of his own equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself and became like one of us. What that means is that he emptied himself of power. This is the posture that God's truth always takes in the world. It is a posture of weakness, of emptiness, of service, of sacrifice. It's not the posture that moves in and colonizes and converts at the tip of a sword. It is a posture that says, this is the truth. I stand in it no matter what the consequences when it threatens power. Truth stands in weakness. And when truth stands in weakness, that weakness is always exploited by power. And then power is condemned by its own actions. This is exactly what we see in the great traditions of civil disobedience. When Gandhi and Jesus and Martin Luther King Jr. stand for what is good and right and true and they stand in weakness, refusing to wield power in a coercive, manipulative, or violent way, power rises up and crushes them publicly. And when the truth stands in weakness and is crushed publicly by power, power is condemned in the eyes of the world by its own actions. This is why civil disobedience and nonviolence work to move the needle Towards justice. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. What he meant is that when we stand what is, for what is good and right and true, we are crushed by power because power is threatened by it. But in being crushed by power, power is condemned. And the needle moves a little closer to what is good. Now, that is hard news to hear because it means that to follow Jesus is to walk in an expression of power that is actually love and not force. Cornel West said famously that justice is what love looks like in public. That when we act out love, In public, it is not with a gun or with a sword or with domineering forces who lord it over others. It is instead as weakness, service, sacrifice. Okay, so can I just say nobody wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to follow Jesus in this way. We'd much rather, like, put on armor, and carry shields with crosses on them, and be part of invading forces that conquer in the name of Jesus because power is fun, power is effective. Power protects us from our greatest fears in life, which are that we might starve or end up on the street or end up cast out by communities that we deeply long to accept us. But the gospel and Jesus's life in ministry point to a very different kind of power, the kind of power that expresses itself in self-sacrifice. Are we willing to suffer on behalf of those who are in need? I mentioned this quote, I don't know, a week or two ago, but it really is true what G.K. Chesterton said, that Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. When we read narratives like this and we see that Jesus is the one who stands for what is good and right and true and refuses to act violently, refuses to wield power on behalf of God, instead gives himself up to be publicly crushed so that power can be condemned. I I look at that and say, no thanks. That's okay. And I do that, of course, because... I'm relatively privileged. So to take up the cross of Christ on behalf of those who are weak and suffering and poor and oppressed means that I am risking my comfort. I'm risking my livelihood. I'm risking my acceptance by people who don't agree that that's what the gospel looks like. And so for the most part, I don't. There's a lot more money in protecting the status quo and holding up tradition than there is in standing and speaking on behalf of those who are crushed and oppressed. And that is, I think, the difficulty of being Christian. The second difficulty in being Christian, other than just standing in weakness And trusting that God's love is actually better is, of course, discerning what the truth actually is. Because when I stand up here and I say uh, that the truth is our highest commitment, that we ought to be committed to it more than to our own power, the sad reality is that many Christians use that same language to defend power to protect the status quo, to hold up tradition even when those things are harmful to others. And so we have a real terrifying responsibility, I think, to discern what the truth actually is. Lots of people use this book to justify all kinds of hate and violence and oppression, and they do so by claiming that it's the truth. And what they've done is they have outsourced their discernment of what is morally good and right and true to a book. They say, it's not what I say, it's what Paul says, or they've outsourced it to a preacher. It's not what I say, it's what, Jason says, but we are called to a much higher standard than that. We are called to discern what's true together, which is why we do this. It's why we dialogue. I can't decide or discern or understand the truth by myself. I need you. Each one of you bringing your very different perspectives, your very different lived experiences, your own suffering to the conversation to figure out what is actually true. Our mission commitment in this church says, if you didn't know that we have a mission commitment, we do. Many of you helped create it. it says we practice the reading and interpretation of scripture together in community because we believe that the dialogue of scripture reveals the relational character of God, especially in the person of Christ. Scripture is a dialogue, and we enter into that dialogue as Christians in order to find out what's true. But if we just outsource that discernment to somebody else, then we've missed our responsibility. That's why we do this in community. God's power is always on the side of those who are weak, those who are marginalized, and those who are oppressed. So you can be sure that if we are using the truth of scripture or the truth of our doctrines or the truth of our traditions in order to marginalize and oppress others, then we are not on God's side. And so this is our responsibility, to figure it out together and then to stand together in courage for those who are suffering. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to gather, to be challenged by uh, the words of Scripture, to be inspired by our prayers, to lift our voices and sing. We pray that you would give us the courage to end the conversations and walk away that are harmful to us. That's what we need to do. If that's what requires that we are safe from people who might be abusive or harmful or violent towards us, we pray that you would give us the ability to recognize that and to walk away when needed. But we also pray, God, that you would give us the courage to speak the truth, even when dialogue fails. Like Jesus, when we recognize that there is no productive conversation anymore anymore. When we recognize that power is rising up to protect itself, we pray that you would give us the courage to speak what's true and to face the consequences. To participate in how your gospel is at work in the world, even through times of suffering. Help us to discern that as well. When you're calling us to stand in spite of uh, the threats. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
2: Good morning, friends, my name's Roy and I get to do some announcements and benediction today. Uh, First of all, thank you to everyone who served. Uh, to make the morning happen, uh, band, uh the folks who led communion, and um, Jason for a wonderful message. Thank you. Um, couple of announcements, uh, ways that you can get involved here at Oceanside Sanctuary. Uh, first of all, we are celebrating 147 years of existing as a congregation here, yeah. And all of you only look 20 years old. It's great. Uh, so our celebration is going to be Sunday the 13th. On Sunday, we will celebrate uh, 147 years here. Our church started in 1875, when 13 Christians gathered in one room in a schoolhouse here in San Luis Rey. Eventually, they moved to Oceanside in 1908 and built our church here in 1928. So join us for a special service and birthday cake as we honor our past, uh, the present, and our future. Secondly, at our uh, Sunday gathering on the 20th, we are celebrating a few things. And we get to be a part of the ordination of Reverend Alex Kim. He is going to want to be called Reverend. The very Reverend. Father. Reverend Kip. Yeah, is, that's what you get now, bro. That, this is it. Uh, so uh, the service is going to be co-led by Reverend Richie Sanchez, and our, uh, who's a regional minister here for the Disciples of Christ. Do we have to call you Reverend uh, on the 20th as well? Just, just you, right? Just me. You know I will. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, so yeah. And then we're also celebrating and honoring Transgender Day of Remembrance for the memory of uh, transgender people whose lives have been lost in acts of um, power gone wrong, power gone evil, uh, in, in acts of anti-transgender violence. Join us for this very special Sunday on the twentieth. Third, pledge to vote in the November elections. I sound so much like a politician right now. <laughs> Uh, OSC congregants pledge to vote uh, are in partnership with the San Diego uh, um, Organizing Project (SDOP) every election season. This gives us as a congregation uh, credibility with electors and helps us put our faith in action. So simply fill out the form and pledge to vote that can be found on our site or through the QR codes that are around uh, the building today. Uh, For all of these event again Man, I'm so good that I already said this next note. So, yeah, you can continue to get more uh, RSVPs and links on our website. I don't like doing announcements, Alex. I just found that out right now. <laughs> uh, so, no, it's okay. So, here's uh, some other ways that you can support the mission of uh, Ocean Site Sanctuary. Ocean Site Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on the gifts and donations of people like you. If you'd like to support our mission, consider giving a gift today at our website, uh, oceansitesanctuary.org slash give, um, or you can scan the QR code. Uh, If you prefer, you can also give cash or a check today. Uh, You'll find all those ways that you can do that online. I don't want to miss anything. Okay. Something meaningful that stuck out to me today. Uh, I'm looking at the passages, uh, 31 verses that Jason's trying to cover today. (laughs) You did great. What I noticed is that there's six times that Jesus, there's six verses that Jesus speaks in. So you have 15% that Jesus is talking while he's being accused and being persecuted. And his words keep getting less and less. less. Towards the point that when they say, are, is this who you really are? He he doesn't even claim it. He says, it is as you say it is. And so one of the takeaways for me is that when we're dealing with power conversations and it's just one-sided, that sometimes we talk less and we listen more and still act out of love and charity and compassion And because Jesus did ultimately end up dying die for enemies as well it is a a, it is a flipped up script where Jesus uses his power to say I am going to choose love I'm going to be about the father's business so can I pray for us and bless us today father son and spirit may you fill us with your power may you fill us with your love May you fill us with your imagination and creativity that we may be people on mission in this world that subverts the power of evil, that breaks the power of injustice through our presence, through our words, through our deeds that reflect you and only you, Jesus. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and may he make his face shine upon you this day. The peace of God be with you today. You are dismissed.